it went away because people were saying, no, you can't do that. that people like my family telling the school, why would you indoctrinate my son with your Catholic belief system? And it wasn't right. a Catholic school that I was going to. These are Catholic states, right? Very different from, you know, like here. Um, but right now, people are saying, well, I don't want to defi- be defined in the ways that you want to define me. And, and it just can't be. <laughs> and so everyone's stuck with, well, how do I teach Spanish? Because it's such a gender anchored language. You know, and this has a lot to do, you know, with 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 the things that we wanted to discuss, um, you know, in today's podcast in terms of like identity through the languages that we speak. Yeah. Yeah. So this week's podcast is about multilingual holism. So this is right up the alley. Actually, everything that we've been talking about is essentially a language based phenomenon because you get into like what is the name by which you will refer to me uh, within this certain context? What is, how will you refer to me? And this is how I want you to refer to me. This is what's acceptable. This is what's possible. And a lot of this is, I think, a healthy analysis of language, right? That, that we're going through uh, as a culture. Where we're saying, okay, well, here we have these pronouns, and um, and if we change our lifestyle as you know in such and such way, um, does our language have the ability to follow that or not? You know, how does the language limit what is possible for us socially? Mm-hmm. Right now, so with Spanish, um, <laughs> with Spanish, I think it's an interesting thing because um, the phenomenon of analyzing our language for um, for what it means to not be binary, right, or in all of the ways, gender neutral or um, undefined or um, plural or whatever, whatever, whatever the the case is, the the phenomenon is a cultural phenomenon within, you know, the U.S. and you could say the West in general. Like it's there's a lot of it that's evolving and cross pollinating, you know, from European countries or EU countries, and um, and the U.S. and Canada, but when I was at my friend's house in Costa Rica last year, and I asked him, I asked Adrian um, specifically about the um, phenomenon of Latin X. I'm like, so what do you think? What do you, like? How do you guys feel about this term Latin X? Instead of saying Latina or Latino, which are which is gender specific. You know, people just say Latin X. And he's like, that's bullshit. <laughs> you know, 
hundred percent. He's like, and, and this is why he's like, that's a U S white person's invention that they're trying to apply almost as an imperial act on the whole of the Spanish speaking world. And I'm like, yes, that, that really is what it is. It's an imperial idea, really. Intent. Us saying, us saying, well, you know, English has progressed to this point and now we're having this like cultural phenomenon that's making us like consider pronouns in a certain way, which I don't have a problem with (laughs) as long as we can be civil about it and, and even get to the point where um, if we need to, we can agree to disagree, right? Like that would be great if it's a discourse, but to take aim at other languages that may not be experiencing the same cultural drive at the same place. I mean, this is what we what I experienced in Costa Rica, where there were a lot of things that I saw going on in Costa Rica where I was just like, man, you know, don't they know that they should, you know, have more recycling happening? And don't they know that they should um change this about their culture to be less pollute pollutant and um this and that and and i had to realize that it's just like who am i to, <laughs> to come down and say you know you know i come from a culture so what where did we you, are you this, saying this, that you this, felt this. like you you felt this awareness you recognized an awareness of your own colonizing imperial ways by yeah, by the having te- just the tendency to want other people to do what your culture does. That's an imperialistic tendency to be like, oh, wait, these people need to get it together because my culture does it like this. And I think that all of them should do it like that too. And like, yeah. that's what the Latinx thing is. Now, if they're just going to con- just going to contain it, you know, within the Western world, and they're not going to try to like outsource that to, and apply it to say everything that's, you know, Central and South America, Philippines, you know, Spain, et cetera, et cetera. That'd be fine, but that's not going to happen because the U S media is, is still the dominant media in the world. And we know that we know that as a culture, we know that. Well, I, one thing that I want to kind of put a little bit of a handbrake because it seems very interesting to me. Uh, Oftentimes when you talk about colonizing and we talk about imperialism, um, both in the past and in its modern forms, uh, it seems to be like a cognitive, um, cognizant imperializing motion. But what you're describing is that often it's not. And I think that the, that it's worth drawing that distinction of when it's happening and there's not an awareness. And when not that not that one just one is more justified than the other, but but distinguishing when there is an awareness of the imperial motion, say, um, say the United States is going to assist in the coup in Chile in 1973, and we're going to bring in um, capitalism 
um, and completely dismantle the social uh, list agenda of Allende and his people. Like, okay, there's, there's, there's clearly an awareness, but oftentimes, especially like with, you know, like what you were describing, it was like, you were unaware of it and you became aware of it. And, and oftentimes that imperialism that we have, that colonizing way that we have, we're not aware of it. I mean, I, I remember when I was in China, uh, f- feeling that same thing in terms of like, like people need to recycle, you know, and, and, and it was under the presumption that re- recycling wasn't happening because there weren't all these barrels here and there. But then when I realized that it was happening in another way, far more than right. it was happening back in the West, because these people built their entire livelihood on making sure that every single little piece of everything uh, was recycled. Um right. It, it in in ways that we don't even recycle, you know, here in my wonderful transfer station in Maine, you know, like when I brought a bunch of styrofoam uh, down, you know, that I had sorted out. Um, I remember like in China, there'd be these buildings, well, not buildings, but like closed off kind of shacks full of all of this styrofoam that these people, these guys would drive around in these little motorcycles and it would be just tied up like like two floors worth of like styrofoam driving down the you know like they were recycling every little piece of styrofoam right right and we and 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 our transfer station that does some incredible stuff just doesn't even have a place for that um it's not financially viable like our 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 recycling ways in to an extent come from a um conscientiousness of it but also it just is it can we capitalize on it on it then it's worth it and 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 it's really capitalized capital driven rather than regenerative driven right it's decidedly not regenerative because the regenerative question would be if we can't recycle it, if it's not profitable to recycle it, and therefore we're not going to recycle it, why would we even be? Why would we it. have this product? Right, right. And and as a culture, that, that's part of the, the insane immaturity of our modernity. Yeah, right. And we talked about this in last week's podcast, where where we said, you know the way that discourse happens right now is from that like low point of very juvenile kind of immature. I'm going to protect my, my ideological authorities and anything that's that operates outside of those is a threat to me. Uh And so this is another example of that from a different angle where, where it's this delusion or denial, like ignorance is bliss sort of thing, where it's just like, well, you know, we do the best we can and we recycle what we can, but, you know, some things just can't be recycled. And so you just got to put those in the landfill and hope that, you know, our kids are going to be the innovators of the future and that 
they're going to come up with something, you know, but I'm not going to stop eating off of styrofoam plates. I'm not going to stop eating with plastic disposable forks. You know, (laughs) it's just like, and one thing after another, where it's just like, wow, you have really told yourself a story there, friend. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, wow. Um, You know, and, and it's, it's progressed to this point where if you're, I don't, I don't know if you guys feel like this, but when we have people over to our house and we pull out real plates and real silverware, everyone is like, whoa, <laughs> you, you, you're really, you're going really all out, huh? going all out. And it's just like, no, you don't have to treat me like that. <laughs> yeah. I was like, no, I just, this is what we have. This is what we eat on. Um, I don't have a place. I don't have any line item in my budget for disposable shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's not a good habit to be in disposable things and a disposable economy like creates a disposable culture. And the problems, so many of the problems that I see are because we treat each other and our world and <laughs> Mm-hmm. our relationships as these sort of disposable things. Right. And, um, and I think it's all set up to kind of be that way. And you have to be more intentional about it if you're not going to do that. And, you know, at the same time, you know, we'd go to Costa Rica and be like, wow, you'd have to have that awareness and then kind of pull back and be like, well, they're using pl- paper plates or they're, they're using styrofoam plates or plastic forks here, you know, and, and so much plastic and so much plastic and we're not in the same position. Then, then when you're at a function, do you choose to use the plastic, the plastic utensils or do you not choose to, like all of those things come into play. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and you're also in this uh, other, you know, second culture situation where you're like, there's still this thing called, you know, manners and being polite, which I think has been lost a lot in the immaturity of our modernity. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, let's dig in a little bit to the importance of multilingual holism. Uh, Maybe, maybe first kick off by what is meant by that and why would we want to have anything to do with that um, in our households uh, and in our schools. Yeah. I always think of Wade Davis. Um, Wade Davis is a um, photographer, writer for uh, National Geographic, really amazing uh, scholar and uh, advocate for different languages and cultures and ways of being um, all over the world. And he poses this question um, where someone says, okay, well, why can't we just have like one unifying language? And I think his response is like, great. Like, can it be, can that language be Urdu? Urdu. Right. Yeah. Uh, something like that, where it's just like, and, and so he puts it, he puts that back out there. You know, the, the person who's, who's requesting that is saying, can everyone just change to speak my language? Mm-hmm. Really? That's what they're saying. And 
And he's saying, no, he's putting it right back at them and saying, yeah, okay, well, let's all just change, but let's change it from your language to their language. And, and why, why, why is there this motion? I mean, it, it reminds me a lot of the Esperanto movement, but why is it, is it simply to communicate, simplify things? Um, why would we not want to go in that direction to where we can all understand each other? Isn't, um, isn't that really what English is allowing uh, for all of us uh, to understand each other? Um, yes, with the caveat that, you know, I know it was our language, but, but it's really making things a lot easier for everyone in the world. <laughs> like any lingua franca would, <laughs> right? Look, I, I think of, I think of a lingua franca in English, you know, in around the globe is uh, very often the lingua franca, the chosen lingua franca. I think of the lingua franca as like, hey, you got a bunch of people, got a bunch of kids, and they're going to be on the playground. What language do they play in if they all come from different cultures? They're going to essentially choose, you know, a way to adapt so that they all get to be included. Um, and so part of that is just the nature of like, well, what, based on history and the way things have worked out and um, who's there and, and who's making the decisions, there's a lot of factors that go into like what that, what that language is going to be. Um, it also has to do with like, how well does your language accept or adapt to other languages mm -hmm. uh there's that 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 factor is there too mm -hmm. so if you are a heavily exclusive language uh like french it may be more difficult because french refuses to you know add new words just like on the fly uh um, give give some examples maybe of how English is quite the opposite, right? English is given to taking on other words from other, like, oh, you know, like, might be an obvious question, but good to contextualize what we're talking about in terms of how many words are added to the English language. The, you know, like, it's this, it's this language that is being kind of introduced to the world but is kind of engulfing and taking on and growing as it expands by how i don't want to say inclusive but by how adept it is to taking on other languages contrast that a little bit with what you're saying the french language refuses to do well you know the, the english language is kind of like a blob. It's kind of like the blob, the monster, the blob, where it's just mm -hmm. kind of like, and it just eats it whatever bigger. is there. It uh -huh. gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's and, still the blob, but it's a bigger blob made up of all the things that it's eaten. Right. So if we have a word like feng shui, it's mm -hmm. like, well, Ours. I didn't know that word would... would when I was growing up, but now it's a common part of, you know, the English lexicon It's like, well, you know, you can throw out a word like feng shui. Uh -huh. um, you can uh, namaste 
is a good one. Mm, right? That's a nice like, one. It's though. a nice one. We're, we love that one. Um, and, and and I would say like a lot of yoga words are in that category of just like, oh, we like this word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, this, this tastes good, right? We're just going to eat this. Um, and, uh, and but if so we, we go back historically, um, English has been doing this for a while where it even took on a bunch of French words uh, just to be able to speak of things that the English speakers of its time had no need for. We see that a lot in, in, in diet in terms of like the differences between, um, you know, like the different kind of meats that you would eat and how, or, or in, as politics grew, it had to take on words from other languages as well. I mean, English has been doing this for a while. It, well, English is more or less a synthetic language after some point in history, right? Because English, and, and I would highly recommend that all of our listeners go and listen to the History of English podcast. Um, it is phenomenal. Um, and, and I'm not even all the, all the way through it, but it's, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful um, uh, work. Yeah, we'll link it to um, <clears throat> today's podcast um as reference resource because that is truly a good one in as much as the history of english uh in under 10 minutes those those are you know if if it's a little (laughs) too much to bite off um the history of the english language um the the 10 minute morsels um is 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 a good introduction as well right and and it it essentially frames exactly what we're talking about is that Mm -hmm. english is only English because it has absorbed so many other languages. We talk about English as being a Germanic language because the basic structures, the basic, the foundational words of what we use on a daily basis uh, tend to be from Germanic roots. Um, And before they were Germanic, they were Proto-Germanic or or Indo-European. So as English grows due to diasporas and conquering and invaders and um, being occupied by different invaders, right? Whether that was the Norse or whether it was the French um, Normans and Romans or the Romans, right? Like it is this thing that was that was battered around in the, in to a great degree, like the, it was uh, sustained by King Alfred who preserved old English and started writing it down and making sure that there was actual texts. Right. And so it was one of the first uh, Germanic languages to be written down. So we have poems like Beowulf, which is one of the first poems to be written down in English, which is kind of an amazing, amazing feat. Um, but as it experiences these different cultural shifts where it's being occupied and people are living and coexisting, different languages are coexisting side by side at really crucial times, um, in the developmental history of English, it just takes on 
other words, right? It just takes on words from those other languages. And so the reason we have shifts between Old English, Middle English, and Modern English are because we have distinctive moments where English all of a sudden took on and shifted all of this other stuff and then changes structurally. We lose a bunch of inflections um, and we uh, we synthesize the, the language with other uh, languages of the conquerors at the time. And when we do that, it also creates an ethos within English that it's okay to take on other words. If you don't have a word for this thing that and another language does, then you use that language, you use that word. And in academics, we have a hierarchy, right? We, we have the basic English, which is what everyone kind of learns. They're two to 10,000 words. And then uh-huh. uh, we consider words that are more advanced have it as having Latin roots or Latinate words. And so all of those uh, words that are cognates with Spanish, with, you know, uh, the majority of Spanish words um, are going to be Latinate words. A lot of our words that are uh, cognates with French and Old French are, are still Latinate. And then we defer to, if it's a more advanced word than Latin, we defer to Greek. And we just say, well, we'll use the Greek word for it. Mm-hmm. So really all of Latin can be English and all of Greek can be English. (laughs) And then why not? Why not the roots of anything else, right? Like, Mm -hmm. so we don't have a a place where we say, no, this is the place where English starts and your your other language over here, this language over here starts, right? We -hmm. just say, oh, if we need that word, We'll borrow it. And if we need to borrow it enough, it'll end up being in the dictionary. (laughs) Yeah. Well, but isn't that kind of like the nature of the beast? Like, like, doesn't that make English the, the holistic multilingual? uh, I mean, it seems to, to call it the blob seems to Satanize its potential. Because as opposed to French that would not allow that to happen and the other words that we don't have in French to come into the language, we just revert to using the word in that language. English is saying, let's, let's just, it's very welcoming. Why, why is this not something positive um, that the, English language allows, thankfully, for the world. Well, if you had to choose, let's say, you're going to have to learn another language because your family moved to this new country. They speak a different language. And you get to pick, I don't know, 10 words of your English lexicon that you get to keep. Actually, you don't get to choose it. They do. (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. right they get to choose the things that are important to them mm-hmm. and so it's it's identifying this this cultural difference like if it's a word that that other language needs or if or if for on, on english's part if if english needs another word it's because english doesn't have a way to say that in english uh-huh. yeah 
And the more it's absorbed over time, the more it probably thinks it has a grasp on, you know, now we can, when we get into like Bree Bree or Hopi or Navajo or Ute or some other language, it's like, well, you know, (laughs) English really starts to uh, falter a lot. But Mm -hmm. when we're talking about imperial languages, which are uh, based on, you know, having a, a, a very qualified verb to be and creates the possibility for us to set ourselves apart from the world, think abstractly. And like all of the Indo-European languages and are, right? Like have, have evolved to be, right? Like those are, those are all imperial languages whether it's French, Spanish, English, German, Dutch, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the, uh, the problem is that if we're dealing with if it was this mutual thing where, where, where it'd be like, well, you know, you Carl go to a new school and you get to continue to, to speak your language and you're celebrated for that, but you know, it's a new school. And so you're going to learn this other language too. And all of the, your ways of being that are English are going to be maintained. We're going to make sure that you maintain that because that's an important part of who you are your heritage and your culture and then there's this other thing that you're going to learn. You're going to learn about a new heritage and new culture. And that's going to become this mutual thing, this, this blending. That would be so beautiful. And unfortunately, that's not really what happens. Is that in diasporas, uh, people move to a new country often because that's where they ended up. You know, they're, they're fleeing some, some disaster or um, some conquest in their own country. And they didn't necessarily want to be there anyway. And as people assimilate to that culture and try to find success and opportunity, um, clearly the, the, the quickest way to do that is to learn the language, mm-hmm. right? We wouldn't have a cliche like, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, right? Uh-huh. Uh, if we didn't recognize that it's just like, okay, if it means my survival or not, I'm going to figure this language out. And you guys had to do that to some degree in China, right? Mm-hmm. And so a, a, a common progression from that is that the children of immigrants are often not taught their the, the mother tongue of their culture. Mm-hmm. And it's specifically kind of kept from them. So in part because kids learn so quickly that it's easy to use the kids as the translation translator translator in you know for things that need to get just get done um (laughs) and the other part is that you want those kids to be successful and so you're like don't like we're not worried about our language which doesn't have as much relevance here you need to be successful here. So you need to speak that language. And what happens is that the, mm-hmm. the language doesn't get carried on. Mm-hmm. And so globalization ends up, especially the way that English is taught around the world, primarily is taught as a way to um, bring other cultures and bring more people into the fold of capitalism, bring more people into the market. It's like, let's mm-hmm. get these people buying this, buying the same things that we're selling. Mm-hmm. And so you want to teach them your language so that they can buy your goods. Mm-hmm. The same reason that 
the Romans and the Gauls would would understand each other each other's language, right? So that they could do uh, trade, mm-hmm. right? Until things went bad, and then you just you know had a war or something, and then, you, and then the war would end, and then you'd have to go back to to trading again. So commerce is a reason to have a mutual movement and understanding of languages, but for English, it's pretty one-sided. Like the people who speak English don't often have to learn another language in order to participate. It's the other people that are having to learn English in order to participate. Yeah, I um, I really want to highlight with Mandarin becoming, um, you know, a, a new language of sorts with amongst so many dialects. Mandarin comes in as an effort to allow us to communicate between, you know, people in, in, in China to communicate um, with each other uh, under a common umbrella. But what we were able to experience there in a very beautiful way is that the local dialects, which I don't even like the, the word dialect because it's so dismissive in English, like, oh, that's just a dialect. Like, it, it's really like the local languages, right? And I, uh-huh. when we were in South China, it was Minanghua, um, the Hua being um, the word of the Minan people, Minanghua, right? Versus Mandarin being the Putonghua, right? Um, so people are, are, I mean, if we're going to be talking about multilingual holism, talk about like a person in Shishu where we were working, where the kids were all trilingual at that point. That's magnificent work. It's um, and and yeah. an incredible head start on the world. Why? Because it is understood that Mandarin is a way for us to communicate as a country, as a world power, as a way of transmitting uh, who we are as the Chinese people. And the efforts made, um, you know, nobody needed to come in and tell the locals, don't forget your Minanghua, you know, the, the grandparents that are raising the grandchildren are speaking Minan because at <laughs> school the kids are learning Mandarin. And then when possible, um, also English. And so there's there's a lot of understanding of life that they're getting from three different angles. And it and and in in many areas there is no overlap. There's well, when I talk love language with grandma, it's in Minanghua. That cannot be uttered in English. Right. Um, likewise, you know, the foods that we eat and so on and so forth as finding some like textbook examples. But the refusal and of our education system stateside to start second language acquisition until junior high at best, right? Um, right? Is such 
a blindness towards well, ultimately, we, you know, like our education, there's this, there, there's this phenomenon where like everything that we do is to try to make ourselves better. And yet, if, if you want to be the best, then why would you not start with that kind of level of understanding earlier on? You know, like, and I, and I wonder when that will actually take place. Like there is such an advantage to knowing Spanish. Oh yeah. Right now in the United States to where mm-hmm. there's so many places that you can no longer even operate. If you don't like, you just don't go there unless you speak Spanish, you wouldn't be able to get around. Right. Like, um, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not asking for altruistic reasons for, you know, multilingual uh, acquisition, but it certainly would benefit. Um, and, and, and yet there's this incredible refusal to embrace that, let alone, let alone Mandarin <laughs> with like, talk about a lack of foresight. Like I'm, I'm saying like in the name of capitalism, let's start learning Mandarin, you know, like even if it's for that reason, let alone something more altruistic, like just as a way of getting to know, you know, a little bit more of our Abenaki people, how much richness would come to our kids by learning like the, the, you know, when, when it gets into like our, our plant species and whatnot, if that made like how much more enriched we would be, but it's really what we're addressing here with like, our English standards is like such a tunnel vision of the potential that we know brains have, especially in the early years to just absorb and, and just become great. It's like the objective is not greatness. It's smallness. Yes. I think that's, that's very well said. Um, And the, advancements in technology are not um yep yep, okay there's like duolingo and there's there's ways to if you're interested there's some great technological apps out there to aid in in acquisition that didn't exist you know 10-15 years but for the most part translation apps are getting to the point where they're you can rely on them even as a crutch and not have to participate in that in the process of actually learning another language. Uh-huh. And so if Google Translate is going to do all your work for you, you're you're missing out on what on the nuances that you're talking about, which is like, look, every every different language, and this is what Wade Davis talks about, every different language is really a different way of thinking and a different way of being mm-hmm. because you're thinking in a different way. And so that your, your being actually changes. Mm-hmm. And when we lose a language or when we don't propagate a language or a language goes extinct because there's just not, you know, those, there's no relevance for it in the modern world anymore. We're losing an entire ethos and philosophy and, and cultural wisdom that, 
only exists in the package of that language. And so we, and because if, if we don't know what that, what we're losing, we're not worried about it. We're like, well, I didn't know it to begin with. So I have no idea, you know, that, that, that language just went extinct. Mm -hmm. And yet when you learn a new language, you're developing all of that in your brain. You're developing those different ways of thinking and different ways of being that then don't ever leave you, right? Like it's powerful to talk to, to my children about how they have this part of their brain. They're, I think um, Van and Paris were both describing it the, the other day where they're like, they have this other world that exists in their brain. And if something happens where they hear the right word, it just triggers this whole world. This whole world, all of a sudden they're there, right? It's like hitting some key to a virtual reality world, right? Like where it's just like, like all of a sudden it's like this part of your brain is turned on that exists. And, and that, you know, if you don't speak the language or, you know, it's just, you know, nonsense. It just, it's just sounds that, that run in and out over you like water. And for your family to be trilingual, um, you know that even to a greater extent of, of what nuances exist, say, in the parts of your brain that are Minan and the parts of your brain that are Mandarin and the parts of your brain that are, that are Spanish, Castellano, the parts of your brain that are English, et cetera, et cetera, right? So the, 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 the question is, how do you translate that value to people who don't know? How do you translate what value? How do you transduce to someone who is monolingual the value of what you have going on inside your brain that you know is going on inside the brains of all the kids running around speaking three languages and you're in the little town of Shishi? Um, right, what? How do you explain that? How could you convince a, you know, a panel that was monolingual of the need, the, the benefit for having linguistic diversity? Mm -hmm. Because, well, the, I mean, what you're talking about in terms of the public education system where it's like, well, we don't even start till seventh grade. It's like, that's a 100% that's a disrespect for other languages that we do that. We basically say the most important language is English. That's a given. And then everyone can learn another language if they want to at some point and learn it poorly. And we'll give you credit for it. We'll actually give you a grade and, and, and some academic, you know, you know, you know, juice just because you did something poorly. And that's what's happening. I mean, no, no one ends up, you know, like I, I went through three, three years of Spanish. It's like, I didn't show up to Costa Rica speaking Spanish. It's like ridiculous. But I can't, <laughs> but I can't understand. I can't understand. Like you, you're wanting me to explain that to some monolingual person. Like I can't understand the waste of time in preschool education by not just having all schools be at least bilingual starting tomorrow. <laughs> like, uh, like why, what would be lost in doing that? 
we know the the sponge capacity of the of children um, would allow for it to happen without a hiccup. We know the prime ages for it, in which language development should take place and acquisition can happen with ease. And we know the benefits of, I mean, I know, I'm certainly the system knows. I just don't understand why, why we don't just do that. Why, why it is the way that it is. Are we, are we that far behind or is there intention malevolent intention to keep the whole thing so small like it wouldn't wow. even be so hard no it, i they don't understand um uh, as a whole they don't understand this is what i'm saying it's like i think that yeah. monolinguistic people absolutely do not understand and the ease of their life allows them to be well, it, and, it, and that's what I was going to get at. Get at with all of this is that mono monolinguistic life, monolinguistic individuals, and societies, and families, and communities, whatever grouping you want, also exhibit a lack of holism when it comes to the diver- other diversities in their life. So, you know, multi mm. a, a multilingual practice goes hand in hand with anyone who's advocating holistic lifestyle and practices. It's a no-brainer at that point. But, you know, you if we don't have an educa- we have an education system that focuses on specialization. So, of course, it's also going to focus on one language and treat everything else like a bunch of hobbies, right? Like Spanish, ah, learn Spanish as a little hobby and learn it bad. We'll give you a couple hours a week, right? It's the same thing that's happening with like the elimination of the arts in some sort of a respectable fragment of time during the week. It's like, oh, okay, go get your cornet. Oh, time's up. Go to recess. You know, um, (laughs) you know, like basically all we have, right, are these English classes, right, and a math class. And that's all that matters at the end of the day. And, and so, you know, like, how it's like, I, I don't even right. want to entertain that conversation. It's so flat, you know, uh, the, the, the analogy is worthwhile flat. It's all flat. It's all, you know, flavorless. And so we, we have no intention of, you know, holism and multilingualism is a celebration of life. It, it, it's not a, practicality that can lead towards financial stability you know it's like you've got to like why why would anybody want to really learn how to grow things right if you can buy things well (laughs) you've got to break those types of mentalities for you know like if we're advocating to get the arts more back into the classrooms let alone you know taking like we come from the earth. Let us learn of the earth in a, in a respectable way. Like that's like, <laughs> there's no room for that in the dialogue right now with, with education. It's flat and mono. Yeah. It's been whittled down. I mean, 
a considerable amount in the last, just the last decade. It's crazy. I, so I, I want to, I mean, you touched on a, on a few different things there. Um, number one, why aren't we teaching other languages in preschool? This is a real, this is a fascinating um, question. From the perspective of, we actually have probably a greater linguistic diversity in preschool teachers than any other segment of school, yeah. right? Yeah. So, you know, to a couple, a couple of years ago, you know, uh, when I was dealing with uh, in, in Denver here, Children's Chalet and, and uh, right. Sunrise, it's like, these are hugely diverse <laughs> populations where you have people from Sudan, South Sudan, from Libya, from Kenya. Um, you have people speaking uh, Arabic, Aramaic, <laughs> you have like this incredible incredible cross-section at the, at the same time they have there'd be like some kid that just you know showed up from honduras <laughs> and he's just like what the hell you know and he's being taught by women from sudan mm -hmm. right and so the women are speaking are trying to speak english poorly and they're trying to teach the kid from Honduras English through this really heavy, rough dialect. And you're like, why don't you just speak Sudanese <laughs> to this kid or Arabic or whatever? And, and, like you just and, and it's no offense to their acquisition no, of English or anything. No, not at all. This it's, is all coming from a point of like, you, like let that happen for whatever it's worth but the, your richness is what yes. is completely being undermined right. and and what we're saying is unacceptable um and is it, it comes from a an impoverished approach towards what learning is all about i mean ultimately if we roll back on all this banter and talk and week after week after week like like we're 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 saying look at the forest it's it's diversity is beyond what we can grasp i a segment of of one square foot of forest would and it, the identification of species required is yeah. a yeah. tall order for us humanoids, right? Um, that you know walk around with education and degrees and all these things, and and it's because ultimately, like, we do have greatness in very small ways. And, and what we're advocating is let's turn that on its head and, and let's have greatness in a great variety of way. And that is yeah. holism. And, and holism can only, if anyone who's advocating a holistic approach towards education, therefore inevitably would have to be advocating for a multilingual approach to education. And that's where we're at with today's um, uh, podcast. There's just no other way. And why would you want to do that? Because of the enrichment 
of what life is. You know, it, it reminds me so much of like Campbell and when he's asked, um, you know, why would anybody want to study math? Come on, come on, let's study economics. And, he, and he's like, you know, you're right. You don't have to do this thing. Your life is going to be fine without it. And it's true. Your life is going to be fine if you just speak one language. It's going to be fine. And, and if you don't want to embrace holis, holism and regeneration, it's going to be fine. But if you could somehow recognize that, that there's more flavors, like, in it, like there's more to eat than what you eat. There's mm-hmm. more ways in which to live than you live. And there's more ways to speak of life. If we could only be enchanted by a childlike fascination for learning, then, then, then we would see a very different type of species after, I don't know, 12 years of that. Right. But, you know, we, we have systems in which the enrichment is right there. Like what you were discussing in terms of, um, you know, the, the multilingual backgrounds of preschool teachers. And what we're saying is don't bring any of that into the classroom. We, yeah, we, we, we don't, don't even that think about it. Like it isn't even, it isn't even a concept that enters anyone's mind. It's a threat. Um, yeah. So my sister does some evaluations of teachers that are preschool teachers. Uh, she does this at the district level. Um, here in one of the counties outside of Denver. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, she, she came to me and she said, I want to ask you some questions about some language stuff. And she's got one teacher uh, who's a great teacher. She's from Vietnam. And uh, she's got another teacher who's a great teacher who is, she might've been from Kenya. She might, I'm not sure where the other teachers, I, anyway, you have, two teachers great both of them are great neither one of them speak english as a native language both of them have really heavy accents and they've been instructed to use this curriculum that's a phonetic based curriculum to teach oh english and their languages that they're preschool? coming from yeah uh yeah so their languages that they're coming from actually don't have these sounds oh my god right don't have all of these sounds. Oh and so when gosh. they're trying to model what this is supposed to sound like, you got a class full of 20 kids and they, and they're, it's like, well, oh the person gosh. modeling it what can't actually do the what phonetic thing. No, that's not her fault. No, but it's like, <laughs> don't like, I wouldn't put myself in that, that position to try to yeah. go teach, you know, and she goes to the district. She's like, uh, this is happening. I don't think that this is really appropriate. What do you want to do about it? And they're like, well, you know, um, well, tell these, you know, so the district came back and said, okay, well, yeah, you're probably right. They shouldn't probably be teaching that part. So the part that's just phonetics, like don't let them teach that part, you know, and have the, have the co-teacher. But then you go to the, the class and you tell these teachers, you're like, okay, look, guys, um, you can't 
we don't want you to teach the phonetics portion of this uh, literacy um, curriculum. Uh, We want your other co-teacher to come and teach it. And these people are offended because to them, (laughs) they speak English really well. And they speak without an accent. Right? Because there's lots of foreigners. Yes, that's what they think. There's a lot. There's a lot of people that they've been speaking English for you know several years now, and they've uh, got a, you know in their uh, mind, they've got a good grasp of this, right? <laughs> and and in their mind, when they speak, they're not speaking with an accent. And so when you tell them that they're speaking with an accent, they're yeah, really offended. Actually, <laughs> they're like, they're yeah. like, uh, no, this is my class. And I'm going to be responsible for it for teaching my, you know. And so yeah. you're like, well, okay. So now you have like two, <laughs> you have a problem on each hand, right? Yeah. You're like, okay, well, why not have the Vietnamese teacher teach a 30 minutes of, of Vietnamese? <laughs> That'd be yeah. awesome. It, and and you were talking about like the richness that it creates and the richness, yes, all of that's true. The other thing that it does is it actually creates and broadens different wiring in your brain. And so it actually builds brain neuron pathways. Yeah. I mean, that wouldn't have otherwise existed. You know, you know, I, and it's really hard. I'm going to be honest. Like it's, it's really hard to speak concretely towards all of that. Okay. Like nobody's put, you know, some sort of neurological testing to my kid's brain, right? Although it has happened for other trilingual children and that those things are out there. But I I will say that, you know, the first time that I was just blown away was I mean, we spoke we spoke English at home, of course. And but for the most part, you know, like our kids grew up in with hearing the English that we spoke was what we could manage within the kindergarten. Right. Um, and, right. and, and then Spanish around the house, trying to keep that going and everything. And like, for, for like, I would say like, let's just put a number at it. Like 40% English was their uh-huh. upbringing. Right. There's like, so imagine like a kid that just receives 40% English and goes to school and both of them, like within their first months of being in the school tested and they were the highest within the top five. Right. That was the first time that I said, wow, see, we did trust the science (laughs) without fully knowing how it all works, but it was just saying um, their brain and let alone many other things will be better for it by just allowing it to happen. And it manifested within that realm to where there's so much effort put and we, cause we could, we could use this analogous in an analogous way for all kinds of other things where, where children are suffering, you know, with um, you know, their, their, their reading levels. And so the focus is, well, get them to read more. Right. And, and really what, you know, we we're opening up here is saying, well, lay off that a little bit 
and allow their brain to do all these other things so that it can then come back towards that. Right. But Mm, when there's a problem, we tend to focus on the problem, right. Rather than all the other things that create that foundation for that problem to not even be a problem later on. Right. It's, this goes back to what we've talked about in terms of like, when you, when you have to tell someone something, you're, uh-huh. deciding that you're not going to wait until they're ready and, and and they them being ready this is the way it looks they ask you a question right and right. and sometimes and, and i see this every week it's some, sometimes those questions just never come and, and you want to you want to do things in a certain way as an educator to try to prompt those, those questions and you do all these you think of all these interesting ways that you might be able to get that question to happen and maybe sometimes you know it doesn't happen but reading is essentially very much like that where it's like you said it's like if you're not doing this well it means you need more practice it, we, we don't say the best asset that any new reader could have is having an immense catalog of stories that they just know inside yeah, their brain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I can speak <laughs> towards examples um, even in, you know, like as a songwriter, right? I don't often talk about, but um, there was a considerable migration away from song, songwriting that took place. I don't know, we could put a, 10 years on it. Well, somehow when I did return to it, I returned to it from having just spent time living, learning, reading, but, but not writing songs. And it had, I spent that same amount of time trying to get better at writing a song, I would not have been able to feel the progress that I felt kind of like nonchalantly. I'm like, Granted, it's not the best lyric that's ever been written, but when I compare something written in comparison to something 10 years before, I'm feeling like, wow, there's been some progress here. But the progress was not achieved by just drilling at that one thing that I wasn't good at. It was by shifting, pivoting away from it into all of this other poverty that I had and then coming back around to it out of my own accord and saying, I'm going to get plugged back into this. And then realizing like, oh, this that just came out was fed by all of this other stuff taking place. Little did I know. Yes. That was the feeling. And I can articulate it. You know, like when my kids go through all of this, you know, that we talked about that a couple of podcasts ago, they can't articulate it all, but you know, for you can observe it, right? And there's so much of this band-aid approach to helping kids in their deficient areas, which is by targeting that deficiency area rather than backing off a little bit and realizing that there's a hell of a lot of other deficiencies that if addressed would benefit that one that seems to be the only one that you're focusing on. We can only see the deficiencies in reading and we can only see the deficiencies 
not even in writing, right? Like, like writing is like a subcategory of, you know, next, uh, like a forgotten bastard sibling of reading, right? And, and because not a lot, all teachers can read, but how many are great writers? You know, that's a whole other Pandora box, right? So, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, you, you said so much there. I think that there's an aspect to language learning that's also exactly what you're saying. And um, where you really have to live in it more to understand the mistakes that you're making like someone can explain the mistakes to you. This, and uh-huh. We've talked a lot about this in terms of like language learning when someone's like, okay, I'm going to tell you all the mistakes that you're making as <laughs> right. you're making them. And while we're having a conversation, right. And you're uh, trying to make sense to me. And, and all I'm uh, doing is like, I'm just critiquing <laughs> your <laughs> language. Right? You're trying to communicate and I'm trying to provide you valuable feedback <laughs> the you only mean, thing i didn't want ask for <laughs> all i want is do you understand me or not i would right. that would i would feel so happy if you just answered back what i think i'm asking i don't need you to correct what i'm saying not just right now please right well let alone go through maybe you know five to ten uh Grammatical explanations. Oh, right. <laughs> oh my goodness! Right. Oh my goodness! So, um, and so you, you and I both were in the applied linguistics sort of category of like this is this whole other world that a lot of a lot of instructors never even see, right? They don't they don't see what happens in a foreign country that you know has a market for. English native teachers that, you know, that could be anyone. (laughs) All you need is, you know, to speak English or maybe you need a degree, maybe not. You know, you're just like, if you speak English, great, you're a teacher. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which is an amazing kind of like assumption, right? Because uh, talk about disrespecting like the idea of an educator is like, wow. So what we learned together really is the importance of listening, of just being, not being asked to produce something, but being invited to listen, be invited to be active without having to input something. What do you mean? What, 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 what examples are you thinking of? All right, so if we're at Studio One and a child comes in and they're they're kind of nervous, but they're really excited about the dog, the this giant-headed black lab, you know, who tromps up to them and his name is Stinky. And we're like, or you know, say hi to Stinky. And then and they're like, hey Stinky. Right. And you're like, no, 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 stinky. Hey, stinky. And you're like, shut up. <laughs> don't say anything. And then you don't want them to say something because if they keep saying, hey, stinky, they're going to keep saying, hey, stinky all the time. 
And Stinky doesn't, then the beautiful part about having this living classroom in Costa Rica, uh, where we had a dog, which was one of the greatest learning tools ever, is that Stinky didn't speak Spanish, really. Like he grew up in like the, the that other, I don't even know what that guy's name was, that expat, that dude who brought us Stinky. I can't remember yeah, his name. Yeah, I can name. remember him. Can't I can remember. remember him. I can't remember his name. And I can remember his wife and his daughter mm-hmm. and Stinky. And Stinky. James. Uh, my anyway. Uh, anyway, he didn't respond to a Stinky. He only responded to Stinky. Uh-huh. Right? And so Stinky kind of in in pressed upon them the need to modify their their pronunciation but what they really mm. needed was to not keep repeating the improper pronunciation they needed to do was listen to all of the other people yelling mm. at stinky stinky mm. get out of here <laughs> stinky no stinky mm-hmm. you know like when stinky started to uh, chase down the motorcycle outside while we were all, <laughs> all trying to trying to tell a story and he gets run mm-hmm. over by the motorcycle and everyone's just like take it out take it out like that's they need all of those different types of input without yeah. having to say anything yeah and eventually when they go to engage their mind will self-correct and they'll get the pronunciation yeah right I mean, that's where that's where so much of storytelling um, as a way to just foster opportunity for enriched listening moments um, became such a, an important part of our multilingual yes. curriculum. Um, you know, I remember being well, let me let me just compare, um, you know, first instances in China. When, you know, one of the things I asked the school is like, man, we really want to learn Chinese, you know? And so the first class, I just remember it being a gruesome course on tones. Oh, like no one was, it, it was uh, John Guqin, you know, my good friend that probably spoke the best English in all of the area there in Jinan. And so his whole lesson was in, in, in English, right? <laughs> Except for his explanations of the tones, you know? And so the sliver of language that I got was just like getting me to do this ma, 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 ma. But it wasn't like an immersion into... Um, you know, Mandarin, where I could just listen, listen on it, because the there there's such a fixation by adults in education that comprehension has to take place. Like we've talked often about like trying to foster a tolerance for ambiguity in our learners, but it's mostly like it's really difficult for adults to trust processes in which immediate comprehension is not um evaluable evaluable like accessible how would i say evaluable accessible Uh, accessible yeah right like um because we we want to know did you understand what i just put out we don't want to like lay out all of this material for you to then I don't want to know if you're lost. 
I, I want to know that you got it. Yeah. And it's interesting because like, you know, like for the most part, I think the the pool of teachers that does best with that are preschool teachers. Like yeah. they're, they're observing, you know, for, for no matter how much, you know, this, the spectrum, you know, has all different degrees of, of capacity and training. But for the most part, the concept in preschool is like, let's just allow them all to learn in their own rhythm. There's the, there's this basic kind of okayness with that um, without pinpointing all of the deficiencies. Like it's kind of like that motion and on, you know, a routine basis, like we, we make notes of certain progress that has been made, but, but you have this timeline in which you can come to learning in your own way. And somehow that magic art of education dissipates into this, like, well, kids, what did you learn today? That starts, you know, the day you walk into the first grade classroom as if everything has to be comprehended, you know, like you got this science class and like kids can repeat back what you want us to repeat for the answer, but we all know we're all lying to ourselves in terms of like, true comprehension for what you know like when they have those lessons on seeds and 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 how do you make a seed grow right and they have to draw the diagram as if that's representative of anything related to growth of plants it's not yeah yeah we we always talked about the uh, the highest order there is not repetition it's not can you repeat what i say it's can you synthesize this into an idea that you have authentically? Because synthesis. Mean? So if you teach a, a child about a seed, right? And uh, growth stages and development, leaves and different you know, areas of maturity in, in, in the life cycle of a plant. But then the child is able to see a different plant and ask you a question about it it means that they're 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 taking that pattern they're recognizing it somewhere else and then they're reformulating a question to you that has the context of everything that they've learned and so it's synthesis um a higher order of synthesis would be for them to make an, an, a metaphor about it hmm. right and so metaphor is is synthesis at a much more sophisticated level. Hmm. And we don't really scaffold comprehension like that in school where we're really qualifying it, rewarding that type of synthesis. You know, one of the tenets that's important to our coursework, our curriculum, our journey is eloquence. And if that really was the case, then Mm -hmm. metaphor would be something that you look for, that you celebrate. Mm -hmm that you mm-hmm. nurture, you propagate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, oh, and stories is, is all included in that. And this may all seem like, well, are they talking about learning a language or are they talking about literacy? And it's like, it's all. Because sometimes if you don't know a language in its entirety, and especially if you have a deficiency compared to another person, 
maybe the way that you bridge that gap of communication is to create an analogy or attempt to create an analogy so that you're trying to like create understanding where there isn't understanding, Mm -hmm. right? And so you're using all of the sophistication of the faculties of language that you have at your disposal, no matter where they came from, what, it doesn't matter what, you know, literacy is literacy. Um, Once you gain some skills, you can cross-reference them and cross-pollinate your learning with other languages if they have those same um, sort of technical aspects, you know, like, we could say, well, well, does how does alliteration work in something like Chinese? Is does it even make sense mm-hmm. in Chinese to even to even use the word alliteration? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know enough about Chinese to say yes or no, but you might. Um, no, neither do I. <laughs> uh, but you still have that concept, and it's a it's a concept that's based on sound. And it's based on like, okay, well this is one of the ways, you know, one of the ways that, that, that our ancestors would learn um, epic poetry in old English and Norse is based on the alliteration Hmm. of different lines. And it's how they would treat, it would trigger the memory for the, for the next line. Mm -hmm. So they're using that as a mnemonic device within the context of their culture and their language. It's all built into it. Right. It makes sense. Hmm. Um, and so it's one of the, the things that we gain from investing in language learning and to go back to, to that idea of like, well, what if these teachers that didn't speak English as a native language, you know, instructed some of the time in their native language, whatever mm-hmm. that is. Mm-hmm. And someone might say, well, who needs Vietnamese? You know, like, that's not like... If it was Chinese, that'd be great. But if but if it's Vietnamese, like there's not as many opportunities, and and, and it goes back to that, like utilitarian viewpoint yeah, of like, yeah. oh well, that's not going to be worth while because not as many people speak it. And it's just like what a what a shallow way to view this gift that this other person has. Yeah. Right. Um, and from an instructor's perspective, if I have a Vietnamese student come in and they just, and they don't speak English, if I, like, it, it's my job in terms of trying to make them feel comfortable and trying to understand, like, what their process is and how they're, how they're understanding, what is their process of learning English? If I'm, if my job is to teach them English, it's like, the more that I know about their their primary language, their mother tongue, the more I will be able to understand what challenges they might have in English and how to develop some strategies on how to overcome those. Hmm. Um, not let alone just helping them feel comfortable, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that social emotional, like, Hey, like I appreciate where, where you came from and, um, and can the whole class learn how to say, yeah. Uh, hello in Vietnamese. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, I mean, they have a gift there, too. There's such a push right now for social emotional learning and like all these components and, and ways to get at it in a classroom. But, but yet like, again, like 
just look in another direction and there's tons of opportunities for from where to integrate empathy into the classroom in far more natural ways um and one is you know that that multilingual approach uh, this has me thinking a lot about another benefit of a multilingual uh, classroom or household, no matter the level. Um, and it has a lot to do with how we did some building uh, language into the learning environment in Studio One in Costa Rica, in that by allowing yourself as an instructor or as an, a parent to not be a master at something, <laughs> and to put yourself as a discipline into vulnerable positions by teaching something that you don't know much of, or even better than teaching, just learning alongside others. What a healthy practice of yeah. just breaking down that barrier of I'm the teacher, you're the student that happens every single day, all throughout the class, all throughout yeah. the year, and just say, um, well, this semester, we're going to focus on Nahuatl. So I don't know any. Um, so how about you guys just find a few words and put them up in the classroom, and we'll just start learning together and see who knows much more. Like you begin to see you be and, and you just put yourself in an observer sort of perspective where you like you observe yourself, you observe students' responses, and empathy takes place. You see how difficult it is to be learning a language, and just how come. I mean, that was like one of the like for as for as little a Mandarin that I walked away from after our time in China. What I walked away from, and which is was my, one of my primary objectives, was because I was bilingual, and had always lived and and taught in either an English speaking country or a Spanish speaking country, and I was bilingual for as far as I could remember. I had no idea how it felt like to just not understand a single thing. Yeah. And and one thing that I did learn in, in, in China was just like, oh my goodness, do I can I pay my respects to people, especially adults, that did learn a language as an adult. But my you know, I can applaud without knowing before my time in China, but my time in China allowed me to empathetically really express yeah. my my sense of awe towards your accomplishment um whoever that is because i had put myself in that position of mm -hmm. you know like allowing myself to be vulnerable and going through all of the frustrations of it firsthand and I think that like by creating multilingual environments in which we're not only just learning a language, learning a culture that we're exposing ourselves to and enriching the classroom with by putting a sign on the door and so on and so forth, but we're also, we're also allowing ourselves to go back in time, go, go out of space into where we are the learner that knows absolutely nothing and remember what that's like 
And it really shifted. Like when I introduce a certain topic to people, um, it really, like, I think immediately about like my experience in learning Mandarin in China to where like, (laughs) it slows you down all of those presumptions of what the learning moment is going to be since I'm going to present learning to everyone. As educators, it's really important uh, to be able to be reminded of that. And for, for, for many of us, the last time that we ever knew nothing about something was so far back that we have no idea what that's like, because for the longest time we've been teaching what we already knew and how can we relate to the students if we're not re immersing ourselves into that experience and, and remembering what it's like to be the learner. Um, it's, Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a fun, uh, practice. Yeah. I I think, like you said, I think it's uncomfortable for many people that are not used to doing it to begin to engage in that practice. I think it can be very uncomfortable in the beginning, but how can we expect to really differentiate for our learners if we're not willing to learn about them? And, And if you have someone who just arrived that speaks a totally different language from you, Say they speak Dari. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. To to dismiss that as just like okay, well, yeah, you don't speak English. You're gonna have some tr- some trouble in here. All right, the class, let's go. Boom, you know, <laughs> you know. Not only is it not empathetic, but you're missing out on everything that you said. The possibility to demonstrate vulnerability to demonstrate what learning looks like, to celebrate the, the, the new person that's there, mm-hmm. to give um, them the opportunity to at least feel seen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about like what it would have been like to have like Owen and Zoe in one of my classes where you could be like, all right, you speak Chinese and no one else speaks Chinese. This may not be a Chinese class, but I'm gonna, but every week you got to teach us a different Chinese word. Yeah, it can be anything right, that you want, yeah. right? Like, and, and that way you're at least, you're at least engaging, you're, you're creating an emergent curriculum that's totally differentiated for, for the person. Um, it doesn't mean that the entire curriculum is thrown out the window and no. then you're, you're like, no one's doing it. No, no it means exactly. you're creating intentional space for the organism of the class to be inclusive of that, of this new element. And, right? and that can go for, that can go for so many, so many things. I mean, really the, the concept of like show and tell is a little bit of like an open window. It's not done well. Um, but, but, but my idea, what, what, what I'm getting at here is like, by opening up to really, uh, you know, put a focus as an educator to make sure that we know our students for who they are and that they know that they're seen, you know, like um, a kid that's trilingual that never has an opportunity to say that is just as much as like when we would bring in, like as soon as like a parent would send me like a, a video of their kid playing piano, I'd be like, oh, okay at the next kindergarten open mic 
playing piano and in front of the whole school <laughs> i don't care what song it is this is a, that's going to be your presentation we'd roll yes. out this grand piano sit the kids sideways close the curtain get everybody real quiet and open it up and the kid would be like dressed you know and they'd go ding 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 <laughs> ding, ding right and like you know <laughs> it, it 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 was incredibly transformative and 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 the things that we're talking about here like again are are not disconnected what's disconnected is our inability to see the connection between all of these things creating multilingual learning environments is holistic practice Absolutely. You cannot have holism without the multiplicity that is granted by multilingual environments. They go hand in hand. We have to talk about them in this way. And as humans, we don't believe that we are made for this one small sort of existence. We're wanting the most out of each of us. And that's just as much in terms of your skill and your awareness, but also in the languages that you speak, they, they feed each other. Yes. In that way, I think that a lot of the approach that we talk about is a reversal from what, from a lot of what's done today. Uh, We tend to see the human as all capable, right? Like you have such vast capacity that is in general by this culture and by our time underutilized, undervalued, uh-huh. um, untouched. Um, and so our time in the classroom, our time as a class together, as, as an organism, should be to be as immersive and as, an, as expansive as possible to be able to try to touch and and harness um, for that learner as much of their potential as possible. Um, So we see rather than this sort of reductive Mm -hmm. uh, specialization, you you said specialization, but it's also at at the root of what and how we call people by their disabilities, right? And how we identify the patterns in whatever their functioning is and say, okay, well, you know, um, this, this person is on the spectrum or this person is, you know, uh, experiences a touch of Asperger's syndrome or whatever the label is, ADHD or anxiety or whatever. Like we, we have a lot, a lot of labels, but it's generally from that, it's approach from that reductionism of like, this is going to tell us what we need to know about you that's important. And it's often, yeah. it's often the thing, the last thing that anyone, that any really great teacher needs to know because really great teachers do not see people through this reductive lens of like, well, tell me the, the easiest pattern that I can, that I can hear to, to sum you up. It's, Oh, well, none of that matters. Um, let's go play. <laughs> like, let's go do all this stuff. Right. Let's, and, and just try it and 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 try it. Um, and keep inviting and keep inviting and invite it, it, Like, the brain is so amazing mm-hmm. that we, in general, I think 
that we do it a disservice by mm-hmm. our our by minimizing and by limiting and by trying to be so overly sensitive and comfortable all the time. Mm-hmm. It's like let let me just make sure that you're comfortable. And it's like and 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 I'm not dismissing trauma. I'm I'm not. I'm 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 not dismissing the, the sense of trauma and the results of trauma, but I am saying that inclusive of trauma, our brains are amazing. <laughs> like, like even with trauma, our brains are amazing. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't. In fact, um, the fact that we can deal with as much trauma as like a lot of people deal with, and still mm-hmm. be like, wow, we can still function and we can mm-hmm. still be creative and we can still be innovative. That is incredible, and that is what we should be celebrating. Mm. So um, it, it may seem a little too easy to be advocating for multilingual holism um, coming from having had experiences of living in other countries, acquiring other languages. And, and I don't want it to be limited just to multilingual. We spoke earlier about how that's analogous towards interest in many things and just a desire to learn. Um, But we could also maybe wrap up uh, tonight's session by addressing how much all of the interest could be in one's very own language, whatever that is. Yeah. But, but when it comes to like, you know, so much of my increased interest in English came from realizing your passion for where do all of these words come from? The, the world of etymology, the origins of our words. Um, and by introducing that, um, I think it's going to be inevitable. It's a nice starting point, perhaps for some that will naturally lead towards other languages. You can't study the origins of our words in English without running into its multi multilingual origins. So, you know, exactly. Talk a little bit about um, the playfulness that we can have with our own English language and, and the value that that brings in terms of moving towards holism. Right. Yeah. I think that etymology should be a, it's a crucial part of literacy from a, an aesthetic value. Like I think it does help with just the general appreciation of like, yes, this is where it comes from. Um, There's a story behind every word, but beyond that, there's a practical reason that you would want to do it because a lot of the nuances of English, English is like a language of exceptions, right? Uh, I before E except after C or when sounding like A is a neighboring way. Right. Like that's like, <laughs> right. so it's like, well, okay. So we have this rhyme to describe, you know, what you're supposed to do, but not, but also when not to do it. Right. Yeah. Learn the, learn all the rules and then all of the exception to all of those rules. 
Right. And then maybe you'll get lucky sometimes doing things correctly. Exactly. But the reason that we have exceptions to rules is because we're absorbing language from other sources that have different rules. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and if we instead looked at it at literacy as this much more holistic approach by saying, no, every rule has a story that goes with it. And by learning the story, it's like, it's like what we talked about um, so often in terms of not presenting concepts or content as this abstract content that you're supposed to memorize, but instead teaching the, the connections, the relational connections to it through a story so that the, the story acts as a medium for conducting the memory and, and the learning and making it approachable to synthesis. So for example, we could say, well, where does the word tomato come from? Uh-huh. Right. And where does, and what does tomato sound like? Sounds well, like- let's, let's, um, let, I mean, the, fir- my first encounter with all of this was just somebody asked a question and, and I had never been to the etymological dictionary. The, the notion was always to say, Hey, well, look that up in the dictionary. And then there was this whole right. other world that is, is amazing that, that, was not common practice is very much so uh, now in the case of, you know, anybody I encounter, but let's just look real quickly at the, at the difference of what you can get by using, you know, student asked tomato. Okay. Well, you can give them your two cents, right. On, on what that is, or you can have some fun with like, well, let's look at tomato right, and see what that is. Right. So and, you, and, and where it came from. And you got like to, you got to be able to identify the moments um, because this is just representative of all kinds of learning potentials that are lost when there's a question and we decide to answer it, you know, off the cuff rather than take it on as an educator to, well, if you're going to be learning something, I'm going to be learning something too. And so the etymological dictionary opens up to, I'm about to go in and learn a few things and you are going to learn a few things with me. And we're going to go into this thing together. It, 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 it takes some time to, to, to develop the, the taste for the flavors of going about words in this way. But uh, let's uh, see what tomato has for us. And uh, we'll, we'll at least say we did one. Yeah. I'm going, to sh- I'm going to actually share screens here so we can both see it. So looking at edamonline.com, tomato is a noun. From 1753, earlier, tomate, or circa 1600, from the Spanish tomate, mid-16th uh, century, it comes from Nahuatl, or Aztecan, tomatl, a tomato <clears throat> said to literally mean the swelling fruit. Hmm. I didn't know that. Wow. From tomana to swell. So we're now wow. le- learning about Nahuatl. Right. This, uh, the Aztec language. We're learning two words tomat, tomat, and tomana is uh, <clears throat> their cognates for swelling, right? 
spelling probably influenced by potato right uh, 1565 uh it's got a slang meaning as a, an attractive girl i've never heard that but it's recorded from 1929 on a note <laughs> on notation of a juicy plump plump <laughs> <laughs> i wonder if you <clears throat> she has tomate <laughs> oh my goodness uh, well wait awesome. before you before you go on a little bit um you know the 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 first thing that comes to me is just that origins of the food that we eat so it's just so yeah. so nice to be able to so quickly already place tomatoes um as being of central american origin um, well, no, and- but you came, you jumped there. So that is a question that I would actually ask kids. I would say, oh, right, 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 right. Based right, right. on where this word's coming from, where do you think the tomato came from? Yeah, that, and, that, that's you know, a great question. You know question. that they're going right. to eventually go there. And then you say, so is pizza a uh, an American food or an Italian food? Right. Right. Well, look up, look up the word celery. Ah, okay. All right. Just real quick so that we can, uh, you know, here we are going to the dictionary, right? Which who knows what the (laughs) celery, a stalk grown in very (laughs) long, like leaf, like, like it just can't compare to what's going on here. Yeah. So if we look up celery, an umbiliferous, which means like an umbrella shaped uh, organization of flowers. And when it looks like don't, a, don't umbrella. read that second word. I don't like that. It's there. It's not necessary. Um, so okay. just skip. I will. Word. I will skip that. An umbiliferous plant long cultivated uh-huh. as a food, 1660s uh-huh. celery from French celery. Uh-huh. Okay. 17th century originally celery s-c-e-l-e-r-i celery mm-hmm. d'italia oh said by <laughs> french sources to be from italian lombard dialect celery or singular salero from what? late latin celion from greek selenon parsley wow. which means parsley specifically wow in medieval greek celery a word of uncertain origin the C spelling attested by 1719 in English is from French. Oh, Middle English words for uh-huh. Middle English words for wild celery were were Ashland Selenine. Wow. So yeah. so you know, you know, with this group of kids that you're kind of enticing into this experience right they're all kind of jaded and like why would i want to do this but you know you very quickly like all right well so is celery similar in origin as a as a vegetable um as what we learned from uh with tomato you know and then they all of a sudden have this map in their minds that they can draw as an art yeah. project for like, okay, this part of the world is ironically not plump. It's kind of <laughs> very celery like, <laughs> but um, you know, you can have though that we're getting too metaphorical here with the fun, but um, 
this is what this hopefully exemplifies what we're getting at in terms of just simple little things can become fun little experiences uh, experiments that go into history geography math yeah what starts as a literacy exercise expands out to to touch and cross connect all these other disciplines that would normally be vacant mm-hmm. you're just or, worried about whether they're going to spell tomato right yeah or or <laughs> right. or or the the learning that we just underwent would would have to come in some disconnected form in a you know, as if these classes existed anymore, but home economics class, right? Um, right. Uh, otherwise, you're just not going to be privy to that kind of information. Yeah, but even in a home economics class, are they going to connect tomato to the Aztecan tomato? No. To the, to, to mana, and it's like, no, right. they're not. And so we're by by the nature. So we just crossed. What is it? Uh, so let me ask you a quick quick question. See if you're you're learning. How do you say to swell in Nahuatl? Tomana. <laughs> yeah, isn't that I'm nice? Sure. I'm not on that. Yeah, page. I I, it, I know it, it. I know it. I I know it because that's what I was thinking. Like it's impossible to forget because the whole word tomato, yeah. right? Almost yeah. the whole word means to swell. And I'm like, what? We just learned Nahuatl. Yeah, we just like so without we, focusing we on learning that. Yeah, we're not even worried about. To, we 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 don't. We may not even have a uh, uh, a child who speaks Nahuatl in the class. If you did, uh-huh. that'd be great. <laughs> but it's like right. But we're able to just in in exploring at at a deep level our our own language. We're not even. I mean, this is all accessible. Uh-huh. so cleanly and easily on the internet it's like there's no reason for us not to do this um right. if we explore further i mean the next paragraph of tomato mm-hmm. um we're we're going to touch on um plant taxonomy we're going to uh, it says it's a member of the nightshade family all of which contain poisonous alkaloids so it's, it's like okay now we're getting now we're getting into some juicy <laughs> no pun intended <laughs> information uh, introduced in europe from the new world by 1550 they regularly were consumed in italy but grown only as ornamental plants in england and not eaten there or in the u.s at first an encyclopedia of 1753 describes it as a fruit eaten either stewed or raw by the spaniards and italians and by the jew families of england Introduced in the U.S. 1789 as part of a program by then Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, but not commonly eaten until after 1830. The older name for it, this is awesome. The older English name for tomato and the usual one before the mid 18th century was love apple. There you go. That is an immense amount of learning. You've got history, you've got science, you've got geography, you've got, um, you know, venomous, yeah. poisonous plants. And then com- like you, like by bringing in celery, you, you're crossing continents. We're, we're talking about, you, you know, you could go back and forth and say, okay, well, well, what are the dates that showed up in the celery article compared to the tomato one? So what are, what is it called then? And was it called that? 
we have so much richness right at our fingertips. So, so does this does this mean that like tomatoes were only introduced to Europe like after like there were no tomatoes over there? None. They're a new world fruit. So how how could Italy even exist? <laughs> right right like these are these are fun like classroom questions right yeah like yeah. right like if if somebody got you know like like it, 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 the curiosity and the fun with the whole kind of question yeah. but but really what you what, what you're realizing is like wait because if celery the, the only reason i thought of that was like celery sicily you know like all of that came from there but wait were they putting celery on their pizza before yeah but then you would look up pizza and then and and then we would learn a lot about pizza and then all of a sudden we turned it into a cooking class right right and because right. cooking like the best part about cooking is the math in each thing that you make how fascinating to go into the math of making pizza right but the the issue is that none of that's possible yeah, that's a, it was a great point to end on because there's no limit to how much we can learn about our own native tongue. I think that's a core element of a mentor, of, of a holistic educator, is that from a literacy perspective, there's no ceiling on learning your language. There's no ceiling on being, on, on how great of a reader you can be or how great of a writer you can be. Um, and investing ourselves and modeling that investment to our students is creating and propagating that love of language um, and the honoring of, of the languages that people are, that all of our students are coming from. Well, that was a fun, fun time, um, as all learning should be. And what we're advocating for here is, you know, speaking speaking a bit of what can be done better, but remembering to just have fun with all of that. Um, taking learning as far as it can go with a simple little question as, "What what's a tomato?" And um, <laughs> I guess we're okay. we'll be uh, having a special guest here pretty soon. Mister Paul Darvazi is going to be joining us. And uh, mm. we're looking forward to that. We'll be we'll be double whamming it uh, this week with another podcast being tracked um, Friday. So I'll yeah. be seeing you again soon. Uh, Paul Darvazi is coming from an extremely interesting cut section when it comes to all the things that we talk about here because he is um, an advocate for video games as a way of learning um and as i'm sure you'll notice as we go into things next week in many ways so are we fear not the technology all within good measure uh we'll talk more about that so you're going to want to tune into that and uh as for now i will say adios ciao au revoir arrivederci my name is Carl, uh, a.k.a. Gluscabi. This is the Origins Podcast here with my co-host, Ron Green, a.k.a. Lucian Nather. 
Thank you so much for joining us. Good night, everybody.